I'm Emily Chen Newton, and this is Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America. The podcast that's part history, part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But because I'm not from the Midwest, each episode I do the research, and then I sit down with folks who are from here. And together we dive into the history and science of famous people, inventions, and cultural trends that got their start in the middle of America. Now, on our previous episodes, we've talked about medical technology like infant incubators, the science of hearing, and the psychology of Ouija boards. But in this episode, we get a little bit more into social science as we are talking about American shopping malls and the social climate surrounding the birth of American malls. And I have two friends here with me in the studio today, Ashley Salem and Lauren Christensen. I've asked Ashley to join us today because she grew up in Omaha and has memories of going to one of the original malls here in Omaha. But Ashley is also a reporter for an organization called NOISE, North Omaha Information Supports Everyone. And so she is connected to the community both on a personal and professional level. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. And I've asked Lauren to come into the studio today because she was also raised in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, and she is a dead mall enthusiast. Hello. Thank you for having me on so I can talk about one of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) For those who may not be familiar, can you explain what a dead mall is? I will give my personal definition so I can preface that so I'm not offending anybody. Um, But to me, a dead mall is a mall that is basically ignored. It's not... Maybe there's a few stores, but they're all kind of sad. There's usually a GNC, maybe a Bath and Body Works. Um, So anywhere from having minimal stores and minimal traffic all the way to being completely abandoned. Um, So anything that fits within those parameters, I consider a dead mall. Okay, sure. And most of the people listening probably have memories of a dead mall in your community and maybe memories of functional malls too because before they died, the malls were born. And to get into this history, we have Jack Thomas, who has visited and written about malls all across the country. We like to call ourselves retail historians, but I'm generally yeah, just a content selector, a social media person, and media consultant for deadmalls.com. So deadmalls.com focuses on the afterlife of many malls across America, and it's become a popular site with dead malls becoming so common in America. But he is here to fill us in on the birth of the indoor American mall. The mall, as it is known now, was started in 1956 by Victor Gruen, and uh, he really uh, had a vision for the mall being the anchor of a community uh, for the suburbs, basically. So he is referring to the Southdale Center. That's the mall in Minnesota that Victor Gruen created. Gruen was born in Vienna, Austria, so he brought concepts of the lively and social shopping areas of Europe here to the U.S. and tried to convert it into a suburban variety that would suit 1950s America. Victor Gruen had this idea of 
creating this, you know, this beautiful indoor shopping complex. So this is another mall expert, a photojournalist, who documents dead malls in America. His name is Seth, and that's Seth with no T. I'm Seth Lawless, a photojournalist, published author, and Huffington Post contributor, best known for documenting some of the most abandoned and forgotten parts of America. And Seth describes Victor Gruen's vision this way. You know, this beautiful indoor shopping complex where there would be falling water and plants and everything would be at your disposal. And he had this great vision. You know, I think about... (laughs) I think about the coin ponds, the wishing wells, the wishing wells. I think about, you know, all those dreams or, you know, all the kids or what, what were they, are their, are their dreams now abandoned because of the abandoned mall or? I can tell you I did not marry Jonathan Taylor Thomas, so (laughs) that dream is dead, (laughs) dead as the mall. Um, But yeah, I think about that. And I also remember with the community aspect, they had a trick-or-treat situation there where you would go and trick-or-treat at the mall. And I remember it being so packed and then everyone was there getting candy and everyone brought their kids there and you'd see everybody you knew. And so it really was a community thing. And I don't remember that the last few years. It was so nice. And then you like see people from you, your school or from your neighborhood walking. You're like, oh my God. This, this community aspect was really key for Gruen that this should be a place for socializing, not just to buy things. But he knew that he needed more uh, for that idea to really sustain itself, um, as Jack of deadmalls.com explains. So, I mean, he, he knew enough that, you know, these wouldn't take off without some sort of business and, you know, consumer-driven anchor. Uh, they always all had a grocery store, a bank, uh, barbershop, you know, any any kind of uh, community-oriented service was usually in the, in one of these. But, you know, there was also more things, like I said, sitting areas, fountains, a lot of the early malls had, you know, like bird uh, nests and things like cages and things like that. So Victor Gruen, he had to bring commerce into this vision of birds' nests and falling water in order to make it work. And the first place in America he did this was Minnesota. And that's the Southdale Center, the mall we were talking about earlier. They began drafting plans for this mall in 1952, and it opened its doors in 1956. However, there was at least one other mall already open in America at that point, and that was the Center, a shopping mall on 42nd and Center Street, Omaha, Nebraska. I think they had a fabric counter in there and all that. It was very much, very much small town type stuff like you would find in South Omaha. This is Tom Johnson, born in Omaha, and he has lived almost his whole life just a few blocks from the center. Well, there was a flower shop in there, too. I think there was a candy store across the hall from it. All these things are just kind of keep popping in there. (laughs) Mary Harding also grew up here and remembers the center. Uh, The mall was built in 1955, and I was about nine years old. So if I went there, I went with my mother. So while the Southdale Center in Minnesota, it's long gotten the credit for being the first indoor American mall, some claim that the first was actually here in Omaha. And the reason that we don't see the center getting credit could be because 
It was designed by Omaha's John Wiebe and not Victor Gruen, the father of the American shopping mall. Uh, it could also be because it was much smaller than Southdale, and I should say that it's a rather contentious subject among retail historians which one was the first. But regardless, we can be sure that in the mid-1950s, somewhere between Edina, Minnesota and Omaha, Nebraska, the American shopping mall was born. And Tom remembers riding his bike all around South Omaha during those days. Yeah, and then we took those bicycles up 42nd Street, and when we got a little older, probably about probably 9 or 10, I suppose, and uh, went up to the center and spent a lot of our summers up there horsing around and stuff. But that's the way we did it in the 50s and the early 60s. You just, you know, stat your mom's hair and go hang out with your buddies and do stuff like that. So we're talking about a mall built in the mid-1950s, right? So we got to get a better feel for the atmosphere and the social climate of Omaha at the time. So to do this, I sat down with Preston Love Jr. I am a adjunct professor at UNO, and I am an author, a lecturer, and I run an organization called Black Votes Matter Institute of Community Engagement. Some of our listeners might know his father. I have a uh, very famous father. His father was a renowned jazz saxophonist and band leader. He played with the likes of Billie Holiday, the Count Basie Orchestra, Stevie Wonder, and Diana Ross. His name also was Preston Love. He had the nerve to call himself the senior, so I'm Preston Love Jr. Well, of course, I was born and raised in Omaha. I hate to share with your audience because I don't know if they can handle it. But in the mid-50s, I was in my early teens. <laughs> so your audience can visualize me as an old man with a beard, but I am one of those. <laughs> and as he says, he was raised here, though not near the Center Mall. He grew up in North Omaha, and he went to school in this very building where our recording studios are now located. I came here, I guess, in 54. And so I'm having a uh, cultural shock here as I return to the scene of the crime. <laughs> Love's experience of the center, though, was significantly different from Tom, who we heard from earlier. My uh, reaction and my peers was we were happy in our poverty-stricken, poor community. Because we were a unit, a happy unit. We were not happy as people have coined slaves who had their food and shelter. That was, that's the misnomer to say they were happy. That's dumb. But we were happy uh, because we were a unit. We were a culture. We were a community. We had a social and commercial and church, civic, all of that within our own reach in our own community. We were unified in our segregated self. So we didn't enjoy going out of that box to go be disrespected. And so uh, as I had conversations, knowing that I was coming to be spotlighted on this great grand subject, and most African Americans don't have a, a lot of, to talk about, nor do they reach down and get stories of segregation or, you know, and so it's very uh, odd. But the answer or the insight into that is that we were not welcome and thought even if we were, we didn't test it. 
because of the environment. So I asked Mr. Love more about this environment, why he felt that other African Americans might not have felt welcome in some place that's become so quintessentially American. Uh, I lived along with most of the African Americans in Omaha, Nebraska, in a red line community, which I call the box. And the box that he's referring to was a reflection of, among other things, of redlining, uh, a racially fraught process of mapping that began in American cities around the 1930s. These maps were used to determine areas for prime investment. So the areas with red lines drawn around them were declared dangerous investment areas. Uh, This also deterred companies from granting loans to people who lived there. I also asked Mr. Love to give us a little bit of the background and history of Omaha as a whole during that time. And he said, I evidently don't know me well because I don't speak shortly about anything. <laughs> when you live as long as I have, uh, you have a lot in your head. And I used to try. I don't try anymore. But I'll do the best that I can. You have to understand that uh, in the mid-50s, Uh, The bigger picture is it was the uh, years of the beginning of the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement in the nation, which would include Omaha, uh, really began in the mid-50s. You had the killing of Emmett Till in the mid-50s. You had the lunch counters movement, and you had uh, the bus boycott in Montgomery, and on and on and on. It was a time where the African-American community essentially said enough is enough to Jim Crow because it had become too much and too overbearing. And we began to kind of flex our cultural muscle. And so the environment nationally, of course, was reflected here. We uh, in Omaha had our dark side of lynchings and racial tensions for sure. And so uh, that was the environment. With that said, uh, here we are with a new mall. I know in Denver there's an area called Five Points that was a really vibrant black community, and essentially a similar thing happened. It was very wonderful, supported, amazing jazz scene, and then similar to factor racism, redlining, and it essentially was completely shut down, and now it's been completely gentrified, and it's full of, like, a fancy pizza shop and, like, specially boiled bagels. And I know there's, like, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, and I'm sure there's many, many more that I don't know about, but I'm just kind of seeing the mall rising up at the same time as all of this is happening to the black community and all of these, like, wonderful areas, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we're going to build an indoor building that has the same things. Well, um, as he went on to say, it's just amazing how, you know, different things can be siloed in, in a way where it's not, it doesn't feel connected, but yet it is. In one way, it seems like things are going terrible because of everything the black people are experiencing in the nation. Um, but then there are malls being created and then there's innovations in other areas. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I was speaking about. And then it's all happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. and. And like, and we almost learn about those in school as two separate things and not as if mm-hmm. they were happening at the same time. Yeah. So, as Mr. Love says, amidst all of this, we have the new mall opening up on 42nd and Center Street right here in Omaha. This is Tom again. 
it was a, a very bright place in there was always people there. And uh, like on the second floor, there was a popcorn outlet. It always smelled good of popcorn. And then like the bowling alley, it smelled like a bowling alley. It just had that smell of the shoes and the wood and the uh, waxes and stuff like that. And kids eating too much popcorn. Okay, so uh, yeah, there was a bowling alley too in this mall on the top floor. It was called Sky Lanes. A lot of you know, close your eyes moments, and you can almost be back at the center mall at the Skylanes and bowling leagues with your buddies and hearing those balls smacking into the pins and making that banging noise all around. It's, it is a, it's a really neat memory. And here is Mary again. On the second floor across the hallway from Yonkers was a bridal store. I can remember that one. And on the first floor, I remember Woolworths. That's probably where I spent my money. Uh, and um, there was a clock shop there and um, shoe shop and just it was really like a little town and with living in that area it was like having our own little town so Mr. Love asked some of his other friends who were a bit older than him and also engaged with civil rights in Omaha to see if they remembered anything I've talked to uh, a couple activists one of them was uh, Mr. Rodney Weed uh, who should be credited with having initiated the start of our first African-American savings and loan, African-American bank, our first African-American radio station, uh, with all due respect. And, uh, and so not just another person, but a great leader. And he was like, I, hmm, hmm, you know, he didn't have a lot, which is a statement. And that statement is, it was great news, but no news in the African-American community. On the paperwork, was it segregated? And from our research, it looks like, uh, I mean, I'm talking specifically about the Center Mall. Mm -hmm. No, it was not on paper segregated. Mm -hmm. But is there an attitude or a air of inclusion? That's a different question. Right. And that communal aspect that we are hearing about from both the Center Mall and North Omaha is exactly what Victor Gruen had in mind when he designed the original mall. But pairing his concept of community building with commerce turned out to be an ill-fated coupling. Uh, here is Jack again of deadmalls.com. But um, unfortunately, his uh, overall plan didn't work out. The mall took off and, you know, consumerism won out and, you know, the suburbs just blew up. Um, so really, it kind of strayed away from his original vision. And later in his life, he was quoted as saying that he, he would not support those uh, bastard developments, as he called them. He basically hated his own creation because of the way uh, developers, all the store companies and things like that, they just took off with the whole consumer side of it, and they kind of left the community part behind. And the irony of this is that that really powerful phenomena that most of us have felt in shopping malls or large grocery stores that make you buy more has been coined for use in psychology, sociology, and architecture as the Gruen effect or the Gruen transfer. Because it's the moment when you transfer from looking for a specific item to just shopping in general. And that concept was named after him, and he would have hated it. And, and Seth, who has photographed so many of these now abandoned spaces, says much the same thing. You know, Victor Gruen is long past. He died on Valentine's Day years ago. 
but one of the things he said right before he uh you know passed was he hated uh, amals how they became and eventually what they came to be uh, mainly his hatred had to do with automobiles and the cars and the parking lots, a sea of wasted space around them. And as Seth mentions cars, it brings up another facet that determined the people who potentially shopped at the center. The limits of a poor community to get around uh, and the burden of that limits migration for poor families. And so bus systems, all of those things come into play when you get into the depth of it all because to get there, you had to go past downtown. You had to get into areas that African-Americans weren't getting into. You know, of course, this, this is not the most enjoyable part of this history to talk about, but it does feel like there's an obligation to do so, to tell the complete story of American malls born in the 1950s. Here's Jack again on that. It really is something that needs to be talked about, even though you know most people probably don't want to. I mean, it it, it really it, it can't be ignored, you know. Yeah, I think it's foolish to not look at these two things that are happening simultaneously and looking how they affect each other instead of being like, here's the good thing, here's the bad thing. Right. Let's talk about them completely separately because that's not how life works. Right. Um, so I think it's doing a disservice to both to not present the whole picture, especially when there are so many different elements, the racial tensions and the economic effects and things like that. If you don't analyze what happened in the past, you can't reap the, the fruit or reap the, the lesson to be able to move forward and not have those same things happen again. And I mean, that's obviously that rippled effect and even the fabric of you know, a lot of the political climate that we're dealing with right now, we just have to learn from, from the past. And we can take the good, too. We take the good. But we have to learn from, from the things that were uncomfortable and unjust. Yeah, I mean, you just you can't ignore it. And, and Seth Lawless has built his whole career on photographing, as he describes it, the most ignored parts of America. Early on, I was going into these places kind of afraid. Uh, I was born and raised in the suburbs, and then I found myself going into areas that appeared to be abandoned to me at first glance, um, that were very high crime areas, very unsafe for me to go into uh, alone. And I realized early on that these places were not necessarily truly abandoned at all. Um, they were embodying some of the most poor and disenfranchised Americans in the country. And uh, I thought that these places were not only being ignored, but the people that still lived amongst these ruins were. And I thought that that story needed to be told. And Seth has a personal connection with these stories of forgotten America. He was raised in Cleveland, but most of his family is from Detroit and grew up throughout his childhood traveling back and forth to different Rust Belt towns and seeing the change in the American landscape. So this issue of American decay is not isolated to malls. I like what Seth said, you know, going into these places where these malls weren't necessarily abandoned at all. So I, I see it kind of as like a skeleton being repurposed because even the people that are staying there or, you know, that's in a lot of places, ways, it's their home. This is a space that now has been repurposed for them. And like you say, the repurposing, I mean, we see that in Detroit right now with rooftop gardens being yes. built up in a lot of places. Uh, I mean, it's, it's cheap real estate. A lot of folks are moving there and doing some pretty cool 
revitalization efforts. But we should say that the center is actually pretty unique in the fact that it is so old, uh, maybe the first indoor mall in America, and it is still standing and is still in use in some capacity. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, our city's hospital system popped up right next to it, um, but it is no longer a shopping mall uh, in the traditional sense. So the question is, why do these malls die? Here's Jack again, our retail historian. And where the dead mall problem comes in is a lot of towns that should have only had one or two, they ended up getting six. And, you know, <clears throat> at first the uh, towns could support that. But of over time, you know, it's just too much retail space, not enough dollars to sustain it. So you just started to see all these malls die off. Bigger malls were built, killing off the smaller, outdated ones. And it just became a domino effect. I kind of think about, I want to say, the elephant in the room being Amazon. <gasps> Um, you know, Amazon, eBay, and um, other online retailers alike really being probably, I say, like the main reason a lot of these places are are being closed. But I say that, but I shop online all the time. So, you know, if my choice is to stay home in my sweatpants and get that product for less money versus putting on pants sure. and going and buying it for more money like obviously i'm going to stay home i don't want to put on pants i don't have, right. if i don't have to put on pants i'm not <laughs> going to like let's just be abundantly clear on that right yeah and also when we talk about the changing landscape it's the the landscape that we have in america includes the internet and yeah. so that all plays a role in it oh. as as well as the suburban sprawl that we have going on. And each city has its own different direction that it pushes. And it's the direction where, like we were saying, the new box stores are built, the outlets, the Costco's, all of those end up yeah. out there. And here in Omaha, that direction is west. Here's Tom again. Omaha has totally given up on uh, people east of 72nd Street to buy anything. And, and he kind of stopped himself there, and he said, oh, I'm getting on my soapbox. But it's a very clear trend of suburban sprawl that we have in our city. And everyone from Omaha that I interviewed for this episode, who grew up here, pointed out that in the 1950s, when the Center Mall was built, that was West Omaha. Like, Omaha didn't go much past 60th Street at best, so building a mall on 42nd, that was west. That was far west. They're like, oh, we'll just keep pushing things west. But as we see with the evolution of American malls, after one fails, or even sometimes before it fails, the next one will be built further out in that direction of suburban sprawl. And in Omaha, that next mall, in quotes, would be the Crossroads Mall. It was built on 72nd and Dodge Streets. Which was a stake in the ground, of what was thought of then as far west development. And Preston Love Jr. does remember going to this mall. It was hot stuff. Now that's a, another kind of deal. And it was, it was a major phenomena to blacks and white. Hmm. By that time that it was built, it was when I was in high school, going to the Crossroads Mall was a big deal. And the more that Mr. Love and I talked, more ideas of city planning and the directional pushes in cities kept coming up. Uh, so here's a bit more of our conversation. As I am kind of struggling and talking out loud with Mr. Love, really about the whole concept of this episode. 
And that's why I, I do think that the conversation on race relations is connected to this story of the American mall mm -hmm. because the mall is so connected to suburban sprawl. Yes. And you can't talk about suburban yeah. sprawl without talking about white flight. Yes. And, and it's just yes. each city has its own direction yeah. that it pushes. And so uh, let me throw this in there. Uh, so as you had that, then the African-American presence in the mall was always catching up with the malls and then therefore catching up uh, and interacting with people who were trying to get away from, <laughs> from nah, it's too easy to say they were trying to get away from the African-Americans, but it was all embedded in the package, which was get away from the urban, uh, which include the African-Americanism. And so here they go, and here we go. So I guess for me, I'm thinking about being a little girl at the Crossroads Mall, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why, but specifically on Sundays, um, we used to go to the mall, Crossroads Mall, all the time when I was a little girl. And I was like a daddy's girl, but I was like obsessed with my mom. My mom was like the, the vision of femininity to me. And I remember walking through the mall with her and Yonkers, Yonkers was the... <laughs> Yonkers was like the place. Yonkers and Sears and Dillard's. That those were the those were the stores. The Holy Trinity. Yes, truly. <laughs> and um, but I remember holding her hand and and having the women come up to my mother and they're handing her you know the little samples of perfume and being like, oh my God, a mommy let me smell like pulling on her hand. I want to smell it too. Not knowing what I was anticipating. Did you um, like it once you smelled it? I did, but I think I liked it because it felt like I was having access and access to this thing that my mom liked. And when I grow up, then maybe I can, I can, you know, smell the paper. The lady would give me the paper directly. I don't know. <laughs> and there's something in American culture about the mall that I think has begun to represent like upward mobility. Maybe that it's like a symbol of, like you said, the upward mobility, but really just hope until things change entirely. And so this is a time of change. Uh, when Crossroads was built, it was the night it was built in 1960 just five years after the center was built. But we see a lot of change in that mall. It was also built closer to North Omaha, making it much more accessible. So here is Tom again talking about the center. You know, I guess the thing that comes to mind too is, I, you know, you're talking about the 50s and 60s where you had the color divide. And, um, you know, like some people could come here and some people could not. And I'm not, I, I don't, I I guess I never realized it if there was such a thing. I was a kid, you know, a little fat white kid that rode his bicycle up to the center. <laughs> so, yeah, but, uh, yeah, as far as um, having any awareness of that kind of thing, I really wasn't. And I think that this really speaks to how prevalent the de facto segregation was at that time. It was just so well understood in certain areas that places like the center really was not a place of overt conflict, like we were saying earlier. And that's not to say that that wasn't happening in Omaha. There there was picketing. There were riots, marches, and some major civil rights organizations formed here, like the DePores Club, which we'll get to in other episodes. But we haven't been able to find this activity or this kind of statement-making surrounding the center. But Mr. Love says... But it does have a statement that is more silent, which is the environment made it so that it was not a factor because 
had it been a community where the African Americans could freely go and feel welcome and what have you, then we would have a lot more interaction, a lot more stories, good or bad. The facts <laughs> that the data shows <laughs> yeah. um, that there's no black voices, uh, that is a very silent statement. Not that I'm sure no black people went there at some point. I'm sure that happened. And in the 80s, I think that began to change a little bit more. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah as things progressed. Mm-hmm. But were those experiences when they went, were they so grand for them to have positive memories of it? Was it um, so full of possible fear or just transactional, like, okay, we got to get this and let's go. Let's get out of here, <laughs> you know. Um, I could see it being possible that, that maybe that was the experience. And that he brings up, too, you know, the community was so strong. Everybody had what they needed in North Omaha. So why would you go to this other place? Yeah, and again, why would yeah, you want to leave? Yeah, yeah. why would you want to leave your neighborhood and support your, like, if you're like, well, I need this thing, I can support my neighbor who owns the store down the street, or I can go and support an anonymous face super far away. You're going to pick to support your community. And on that note, this is Tom, who later is recalling, he does remember the geographic divide in the city. I really didn't go much north of Dodge Street when I was a kid because we didn't have any reason to. And then... Um, then my sons started going to North High, and all of a sudden I'm going to Ames Street. <laughs> so, so my life changed a little bit as you got over older. And Mary also remembers some of the major changes in the city. When my kids were in school in the early to mid '70s, is when busing started here, and so there were blacks that were bused to our West Omaha school, what was then West Omaha. So this is the cultural environment that the crossroads existed within. And that is, of course, before most of the stores within that mall closed and then the newer malls were built even further out west, not unlike the movement of people that began moving west after busing started here. A lot of white flight, you know, people wanting to move into Millard or Alcorn because they weren't part of Omaha. Jack with uh, deadmalls.com also brought up because I asked him why you know why does this happen and he said well I mean have you heard of white flight yeah I mean that it's it's hard to ignore that in this conversation and so here we are all these dying malls and the question also is not not how they die and why but also what happens to them afterwards and uh, well as I said Seth has made a career out of documenting these spaces And in fact, his latest book is all about dead malls. My next published book is called uh, uh, Abandoned Malls of America, Crumbling Commerce uh, Left Behind. It's going to be out in January. No one has been to more abandoned malls than me, and I've documented quite a bit, introduced some of those into the National Archives in D.C. But beyond that, the book uh, examines these abandoned malls and uh, a little bit more surrounding that. And he says that most of the time, these malls are just torn down. Yeah, a lot of the malls that uh, that are in my book have not been uh, repurposed. In fact, I've only seen a couple times where we filmed the Viceland TV show Abandoned. We were inside a, a mall that was converted to all churches. I've seen another one like that in Louisiana. But again, these are few and far between. These, these are rare instances where we see repurpose of the existing mall space. I don't see a lot that are actually being repurposed. I do see a lot being completely demolished. In fact, there's three 
in in my home state um some of my most viral images of abandoned malls ironically all three of those have been tore down uh and bought by amazon and now they're amazon fulfillment centers and so that's you know the irony that these fulfillment centers are shipping out my books of the same malls that existed on the same site is just i mean it's just almost unbelievable for me that is so crazy to think about like the exact same thing being replaced whoa yeah well and now amazon is moving physical stores you can buy stuff at into malls right and that's such a weird (laughs) there's one in colorado that i went to and it was just the most bizarre it was like a really expensive dollar store because it was just kind of everything. And a there was really expensive dollar it, store. Like as far as like there was just kind of a mishmash of everything, yeah. and there was like fairy like kitchen books, blah 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 blah. But it was just this weird mishmash of stuff, and the aesthetic was terrible. Which is totally the Gruen effect. Yeah, like it was this mismatch. But it was thing. such an unpleasant shopping experience to mm. shop Amazon in real life because oh. it was just like fluorescent lighting from above. Nothing was organized, uh-uh. which is. Yeah, it was, it was. And you had to put on pants. And I had to put on pants. The worst <laughs> tragedy of all. But yeah, it was a very unpleasant shopping experience to shop Amazon in real life. And so all these vices are having to do different unique things, but sometimes it doesn't work and they do die. And there is some repurposing, though, that can happen. They're not always torn down. And Jack of deadmalls.com says that if there is repurposing of any kind, that churches and medical offices are most common. Those are the two big ones. Uh, You know, once in a while you'll see, like, just warehouse space offices. And then, like I mentioned before, the uh, car dealerships. But, yeah, most of the time it's it's medical offices and uh, religious uh, organizations. And some of the funkier uses that are worth mentioning are are old malls being used as art museums, homeless shelters, um, micro apartments. And there is one other rebirth that is sometimes seen, and that is the business center. So all these shells of the shops that once were become office spaces of all kinds of businesses that need cheap rent and don't mind the retro decor. And that is exactly what happened to our very own center mall. Uh, here's a list of the current organizations in the center. You guys can just kind of take turns reading. These are some of the ones that we find in four stories of the center mall that exists. Lutheran Family Services. Women of Color Nebraska Caucus. Capstone Behavioral Health. Gentle Dental. Our House Youth Services. Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. Chrysalis Studio of Belly Dance. I like that last one. <laughs> Sounds fun, you know. You can get your teeth worked on, and you work on your tongue. And they're gentle. Yeah. And so, as you can tell, most of these are social services, um, auxiliary medical care, medical device sales, nonprofits working on social issues, and some churches and dance classes. (laughs) I mean, I think it's nice that we have this pre, I mean, like, maybe the mall in itself, definitely problematic. But um, we also have this space to really, truly build a community center. You know, we have these places that have parking and things like that. So, you know, especially with social services, instead of having to take, you know, if you are you lack upper mobility and you maybe you do have trouble with transportation instead of having to go all over to hit all of these social services, you can go to this one spot as far as that kind of stuff goes, hopefully. So we kind of talked about the repurposing of a lot of the abandoned malls. But I think there is some missed opportunity for housing, you know, with the homeless population could be added to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's 
could also be a really holistic approach. You could have the housing and mm-hmm. the social services in one spot and then also provide a place for those folks to have jobs all in one spot. Absolutely. And like job training skills, things like that. But you also have a safe place to sleep upstairs. So you're not having that added stress. So I think it could be a really cool holistic approach to improving the community. And our center mall is doing a lot of those things. There is no housing in there mm-hmm. for sure. And um, of all the guys that I spoke to about this, the retail historian, Seth Lawless, they were all pretty clear on that it really seems like the center is a bit of an anomaly and like pretty unique mm. in the fact that, that it is existing in this way of all these different social services in one building. And so in a way... Our center here in Omaha is fulfilling Victor Gruen's original dream for the mall as a community and and social center. Seth, again, on Gruen's final wish for the American Mall. He had a death wish. He said, you know, I wish all American malls would, would, you know, crumble and and die and go away and be forgotten. And so because it got away from that communal aspect, well, this was one instance in your city where he'd probably be looking down saying, all right, you guys got it right. So if you've listened to any of our episodes thus far on Made in the Middle, you know that this is when we would usually end the show with a nice little button, just like this, with it all circling back around and being tied up. But that doesn't feel right to me because the suburbs are still expanding, white flight is still happening, and shopping centers are still being built further and further out. So this story doesn't feel like it gets a button. So instead, the last clip I have is just the end of my conversation with Preston Love Jr. Maybe there is a case to be made that if you look at points of time and points of uh, shopping malls, what does that tell you about the bigger community? Very interesting, provocative thought. This is an ongoing conversation. As you said, that... This doesn't get doesn't get a button. There's no nice uh, bow to tie on this and count it done or check it off. Um, it's something to continuously reflect on and also look at the opportunities um, to be able to move forward. And perhaps, you know, I could write that business plan for whoever <laughs> whoever's out there that wants to <laughs> be a supporter. But but to create more spaces to to be able to look at these environments and look at these malls and say well what can we do more with them Um, as our society has advanced as the needs have changed what can we repurpose these spaces for that's going to provide for that upward mobility that we kind of talked about earlier yeah the upward mobility that the mall originally embodied and and still does that Mm -hmm. maybe can live on in a slightly different way Thank you so much to both of you, Ashley and Lauren, for coming in. This has been a really good conversation, really wonderful conversation. You've been listening to Made in the Middle, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We would like to thank our special guests, Ashley Salem and Lauren Christensen. We must also give a big thanks to the Durham Museum for the photos you will see on our website and for connecting us to Tom Johnson and Mary Harding, who we must also thank for sharing their childhood memories. Lastly, we thank Preston Love Jr. and Jack Thomas for their time and interviews and Seth Lawless not only for his interview but also for the photographs of dead malls we've posted on our website as well.
We must also thank Lola's Cafe, located in the Dundee Theatre, for keeping us going during our listening party for this episode with a whole host of breakfast treats they provided for us. This podcast is produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Joshua Allen LeBure, and Todd Hatton. Sound design by Ben So Lee. Our theme music, Castle on the Cumberland, is written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn. Please remember to leave us a review for this episode and to send us your listener comments through Instagram or Twitter. That's at KIOS Omaha. And of course, Subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes of Made in the Middle.